For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Aaron Lammer, here with Evan Ratliff, here with Max Linsky. What's up, you guys? Hey, Aaron. I'm I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm, I'm pretty angry at you about this week's guest. Why is that? Because I've wanted to have this guest for a really long oh, really? time, we've been, and I just have failed to get off my in ass. Se- we've been in secret competition? I just didn't figure out how to make it happen, and now you've done it, and now I'm jealous. Well, he is, um, this week's guest uh, has been a somewhat elusive figure. Uh, I feel like most people who are out there publishing a lot in magazines is like fairly easy to track them down, get them on the show. Um, Tom Bissell, when we started doing the show, was like a really big writer in the world of literary journalism. Um, published lots of stuff. He wrote about literature. Um, he's written books. He wrote a book about going to Vietnam with his father, who was a veteran. And then he started writing about um, video games like kind of exclusively about video games. And then he started writing about doing cocaine and playing video games. And then he didn't publish all that much for a pretty long time. And that was kind of when we tried to start getting, we tried to get him on the show around then it's taken till now. Now he can answer all those questions. The, the answer to what he was doing during a lot of that time was crossing the line and uh, writing video games. And also the room. Also the room. He also wrote um, the story in Harper's about the room that became uh, the book, The Disaster Artist, which he wrote with one of the actors who was in the room, which I b- believe was nominated for um, Best uh, Adapted Screenplay uh, at this year's Academy Awards. So all over the place. Well, Evan, you had five years to figure out it. how to pull it off. I blew it. <laughs> and I'm glad it's finally happening. Um This episode, as all our episodes, is brought to you by MailChimp. They make it easy to email like a pro. Uh, You can uh, stay in touch with people who like your art, your work, so you don't uh, become an elusive figure that's hard to book for a podcast. And now here's Aaron with Tom Bissell. Welcome, Tom Bissell. Thank you for having me, Aaron. I'm delighted to be here. And let me say that I've always had an extremely soft spot in my heart for long form because you guys have been very good about showcasing some of my long form pieces on your site. And there's a piece that I wrote 
uh, God, maybe a decade ago about the Loch Ness Monster that I don't think anyone I know has even read, and yet it's one of your editor's picks. And so it's a, a favorite piece of mine, and uh, I'm glad to know that there are other Nessie fanatics at your fine organization. That's actually an interesting place to start, because when we started doing the site, which I'm going to say was 2009, 2010 maybe, you were all over the place. You were publishing lots of pieces, big magazines, big assignments. And then I remember you started to shift into doing video game writing, writing about video games. And you published a piece about playing a lot of Grand Theft Auto and doing cocaine. And then you kind of disappeared a little bit from my view. <laughs> and I went, what, what happened to that guy? I really liked his writing. And it's not like you didn't publish anything, but it seemed like you turned a, a corner there. So I was wondering if we could maybe pick up there and what sure. was going on with you like circa 2010. Well, uh, circa 2010, I stopped making a living primarily writing magazine pieces and shifted over to making a living writing video games and uh, writing magazine pieces occasionally, you know, when I really wanted to. And just the, the center of gravity for how I made money just changed. And I was publishing a lot of stories and I was single, you know, I was living all over the world. I didn't have the time pressure that I, you know, would come to have later and that I have a family and I'm a somewhat more stable living situation. So my, my whole life changed. And, it, and the biggest change was just what I spent my daily time on shifted. And the fact that this book, Apostle, that I published a couple years ago, you know, I worked on it for 10 years. And it was after 2010, where I realized I signed the contract for this book five years ago, and it's, you know, nowhere near being done. I just had to sort of put my head down, work in video games for money, and then work on the Apostle book uh, for, you know, my artistic sanity. So... I still love magazine writing. I still do it. But magazine writing, it will shock you to know, is uh, somewhat less remunerative than writing blockbuster video games. <laughs> so to rouse me out of my uh, video game mindset, it just has to be something I'm dying to write about. Did you originally come to video game writing because it was better paying? or Because you did seem like pretty genuinely obsessed with video games during that period. Yeah, yeah, I was. I've played them my whole life, but I got super obsessed with them around 2000. 7, 2008, when I had this massive case of writer's block, wasn't writing anything, got mixed up in drugs. And so games just were what I did for probably a good solid year. I mostly played video games. Luckily, I got a book out of it, this book, Extra Lives, which is sort of my planting my flag atop the mountain and saying, video games need to do better storytelling. <laughs> Little did I know, A, how hard that was and B, how, uh, <laughs> you know, how completely I would, uh, have my mind changed about what storytelling in video games is or should be. or So yeah, I wrote this book whose thesis I now completely disagree with now that I've been doing this as a professional for, you know, seven years or something now. Why, why do you disagree with the thesis of it? I'm curious. Because I mean, the book is ultimately fairly positive about video games. Yes, yeah, it is. Well, I wanted games to have sort of the same thematic heft that, you know, films and novels I loved did, not realizing that you know, the typical commercially inclined game is usually about violence and confrontation. And the mechanics of those games don't really reward the kind of patient exploration of themes and topics that novels especially are good at, nonfiction books are especially good at. You know, the kind of games I work on are sort of popcorn blockbuster games. And those games are, are 
tough to sort of make serious artistic statements about much of anything, which is not to say that there aren't smaller games or different kinds of games that you can do that in. But, you know, I haven't worked on too many of those. So I kind of happily still work in the action game space. It's a lot of fun. I love the people I work with. But, you know, as I've often said, it's not the writing I hope I'm judged for when I go to literary heaven. I um, I think me and you have a few similarities. I'm also a pretty addictive person. But for some reason, video games have never fully captured me. And I think my own internal explanation is similar to what you wrote in Extra Lives is, oh, well, they're not appealing to the uh, sophisticated storytelling part of my brain. But from what I'm hearing you say, video games operate on different levels. Like when I actually think about the games that I've been the closest to being truly transcendent experiences for me. It's not because they're close to great literature. Like I had an right. incredible experience with the new Zelda um, mm-hmm. on the Nintendo Switch and it had nothing to do with literature. It had to do with like leaves of grass swaying in an open field and feeling like I was like immersed in a dream state almost. What have you found as someone who's writing these games? Like w- what makes a good game? Games are an experiential activity wrapped around often a kind of loose narrative trapping that involve physical calisthenics of your fingers and the mental calisthenics of figuring out how to process the massive amounts of information a game is throwing at you. Games are about systems, games are about activity, and games are about doing. They're not typically about thoughtful exploration. They're not typically about meditative experiences, although they can be, but that's usually on the player to determine how meditative you want that experience to be. Like Zelda gives you an immense world with a bunch of interlocking, complicated systems that are fascinating to futz around with. And, you know, a kind of coloring book story of a little boy named Link and a bad guy named Ganon and a princess named Zelda. That's really all games need. They need a character, a setting, and a problem. So some games do an awfully good job mimicking action movie sort of storytelling. And some games do an amazing job at exploring a completely hitherto unknown realm of storytelling. I'm thinking of a game like Papers, Please, which is a passport checkpoint simulation game where you play the guy letting people into a fictional country and your decisions that you make sort of determine how the world unfolds. It's a really fascinating game. It's not really a story game. It's more like a situation game that holds a mirror up to the player. Those to me are the most interesting things games can do. Hold a mirror up to the player give the player a bunch of interesting systems or scenarios or even combat encounters to react to and just sort of let the story be the player's experience. And that's the big thing I've realized is that my job is to provide a kind of narrative carrot, but the stick is really what the player does and has to be that or else it's not allowing the medium to do what it does best. I think I when I was playing Zelda, it reminded me a little bit of like a period in college when I read a lot of Joseph Campbell books <laughs> about mythology. And I realized what I was doing was like I was going around exploring the mythology of this of Hyrule, but the hero's journey was not important to me. The narrative was not important to me. Saving the princess was 
really not particularly important to me. It was like almost like a different take on mythology because mm-hmm. so much of our experiences around mythology involve a, a story that you can tell another person and that has to have a protagonist and it has to have all of these qualities. It almost seems like experiential entertainment. We're really just like we're at like year 10 or year, you know, year 15 of it. We're not really clear what its parameters are yet. I think you're exactly right. And, you know, I have friends that are working in VR right now, and half of them are convinced that it's the future of storytelling, and the other half are convinced that that the storytelling that we've accustomed ourselves to over the last two millennia is completely incompatible with what VR storytelling needs to be. And to actually discover what good storytelling in the VR space is, is going to rewire a complete remapping of what our brains have come to expect when it comes to experiences and stories. So yeah, I totally agree with you. I think we're at year 10 or year 15, maybe year 20 of a truly revolutionary crack up of what we've typically expected from stories, which doesn't mean I think old school style stories are going to fade any more than opera or ballet or any of these other, you know, once riotously followed art forms have disappeared today. They're still around. They just have a more sort of boutique audience. But whether or not traditional narrative films and traditional narrative novels are ever going to be the equivalent of opera, gosh, I sure hope not. But I can easily imagine a future in which that's the case. Is it strange for you who has someone who's developed this whole toolkit as a writer, a narrative toolkit, a toolkit of sentence construction, like as you've branched into these new areas. And I don't even just mean video game writing. I also mean um, you wrote uh, The Disaster Artist, which is a book about a cult movie. It's not a book that necessarily like draws heavily on a English education. It's almost a, it's almost like a new form that I feel like kind of comes a little bit out of the oral history or something like that. Yeah. Like what's it like taking what um seems like in your new book, your new collection which is largely about writers and writing and creators you seem to be someone who is a student of, you know, the classical short story writers and that kind of thing. Yeah, making sentences is the closest thing I have to religion, you know. Sentences, beautiful sentences are to me the thing that matters more than anything. And a beautiful sentence can bring me to my knees. And that's what I try to do. That's what I love more than anything. And that talent and that skill has absolutely, well, no, I won't say absolutely, has very little crossover into the, you know, doing something like uh, writing a video game or writing a TV pilot or even writing a screenplay. That's just not why anyone's there. So that part of me is still present when I'm doing that stuff, but it's not the ball game, you know, the way it is in a piece of narrative prose. If the sentences aren't great, then, you know, what do you have? You have nothing really when you're talking about a piece of narrative prose. But it's funny you mentioned The Disaster Artist because that was the first book I wrote, co-wrote with Greg, where, you know, when I was doing the first drafts, of the chapters. That's how we started. I wrote the first draft, Greg rewrote, I rewrote, Greg rewrote, I rewrote until we were done. That was the first book that I'd ever written where I wasn't sweating the sentences to the degree that I would if it were like my own book. And I'll be goddamned if I didn't learn something pretty valuable during the writing of that book is that it's a pretty, like the thing moves, you know, you pick it up and you read it. And I think it's a really entertaining book. And I kind of chuckled to myself, like, what does it say that the one book where I wasn't fanatically sweating out the sentences is actually the most fun for civilians to read afterwards? So I I kind of have come around to like, maybe not as 
monkish or fanatical devotion to sentence idolatry as I was when I was a younger writer or earlier in my career. I think I'm coming around to a place where a lot of middle-aged writers get to, which was, I tried to rewire and change the world with the beauty of language alone. It didn't work. Now, how about I just try to write stuff that's true or that's not determined to show people like I'm a great capital G writer, capital W. I used to, I think like a lot of young writers, you're driven by that. And then at a certain point, you realize that A, you're not going to be the great writer, capital G, capital W, you wanted to be, and B, the determination of that is kind of completely beyond your power to, <laughs> to, to control. So best that you just write as best as you can and as honestly as you can, and, and everything else just sort of becomes gravy. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a brief word from our sponsor, Tripping.com. I'm currently planning a summer vacation with my co-host, Max Linsky. We want to take our young children somewhere upstate, and it has got to have a pool. Uh, Normally, I'd probably search among a bunch of websites looking for a good deal, but I don't have to anymore thanks to Tripping.com, where one search lets you compare every home from the world's top vacation rental sites in one place so you can find the best deal on a perfect vacation rental for you. Why a vacation rental? They offer more privacy, more space for everyone, all under one roof, more choices, fully stocked kitchens, extra bedrooms, even hot tubs. And when you book at Tripping.com, you can save up to 80% against a traditional hotel room. So I want you to go to tripping.com slash longform. That's T-R-I-P-P-I-N-G.com slash longform and find your perfect vacation rental today. Again, tripping.com slash longform. Thanks, tripping.com. Here I am back with Tom Bissell. I think it's the first essay in this collection, which is about um, republishing Paula Fox uh, when you worked at W.W. Norton. Also, it seems like there's a increasing awareness that the capital G great writer is itself a roller coaster ride <laughs> in which you can believe yourself to be that, but you still can very easily be forgotten. And whether you're remembered or you're ever recognized by anyone else as the capital G writer is uh, largely to do with chance. Mm-hmm. For you, within your own career, what do you see as the big chance moments that have led you to where you are now? The biggest one was the earliest one, which was I quit the Peace Corps. I was back in my hometown, a complete failure, or so I thought. Why did you quit the Peace Corps? I just was too young. It was a hard place to be. I was 22 years old. I'd never really traveled. I was in the middle of the former Soviet Union. You know, I was basically the only American within 300 miles in any direction. It was just a lot. My mind just broke. There, I think there's been three or four Peace Corps stories on this podcast, and I don't think anyone uh, who's ever been on this podcast has finished the Peace Corps. Yeah. Everyone everyone who becomes a successful magazine writer quit the Peace Corps. <laughs> yeah. Do, that, do with that what you will. Yeah, no, it's, uh, there's something to that, certainly. So I wound up back in my hometown. I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. So I applied for two things. One was an internship at the local paper mill in my hometown, writing their newsletter. And the other was an internship for Harper's Magazine. And 
I was one of three applicants at the paper mill, one of two interviewees, and I didn't get it. And I found out I didn't get the paper mill job like three days before I found out I got the an interview for the Harper's internship. So I drove out to New York and did the interview, felt pretty good about it, and found out on my way home that I got it. And so a few months later, I moved to New York and worked there for six months as an unpaid intern, and then got a job as an editorial assistant at W.W. Norton. And my boss, the wonderful Jerry Howard, who discovered Irvin Welsh and David Foster Wallace and Chuck Palahniuk and any number of other great writers, he uh, sort of taught me the ropes. And pretty soon after I worked there, he left to go to Doubleday. In a lot of situations, I just would have been let go because my boss was no longer there. But Jerry said, keep this kid around, you know, find stuff for him to do until you hire uh, a replacement for me, which is what they did. So they brought me a pile of backlist books, said, read all these, see which ones could benefit from new covers and new introductions and stuff like that. So I had like a four or five month period where I just read like 30 and 40 year old Norton books that were moldering on the backlist and proposed new covers and new back copy and new introducers and new blurbs for them. And it was like just a total delight. And that sort of made me into a young editor. And, uh, you know, I could have gotten that paper mill thing or Jerry could have been less kind to me and my life would have been completely different. Full disclosure, I am also a former editorial assistant at WW Norton. No, who did you work for? <laughs> Maria Guarnaschelli. Yeah, I was uh, Maria's. Yeah. And uh, I lasted about as long as you lasted in the Peace Corps. And I <laughs> quit to become a front doorman bouncer at the knitting factory. And But it was like a, a super influential time in my life also. I think that that kind of, and, and you write about this very elegantly, realizing how the sausage is made in publishing can also undermine your big time writer ambitions. Mm-hmm. Like seeing like a slush pile at a publishing house can change you forever, I think. It makes you determined not to wind up there. Um, <laughs> exactly. Or potentially to change jobs <laughs> to not wind up there. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you like how did you start getting your own writing out there? Like what were your first few steps towards getting published yourself? I published a couple short stories before you know, I moved to New York in like tiny literary magazines and I'd always been writing stories. I wrote a few stories set in Uzbekistan that nobody really wanted to publish because, you know, this is pre 9-11. This is in 1999, 2000 when people were like, why the fuck would you want to write fiction about this weird, obscure part of the world that nobody knows anything about? And then uh, I got an agent, just a woman that I'd worked with, you know, on the, as the assistant side and I really liked her. And I sort of shared with her my literary ambitions, and she sort of politely agreed to read some of my stuff. And lo and behold, she really liked it. Her name is Heather Schroeder. She was at ICM for a long time, which is a pretty good agency to get behind you as a 23-year-old kid. And, you know, she I was working on a novel, which never went anywhere, but... This is another crazy story. This would never happen today. I mean, I still can't believe it happened at all. I had a collection of short stories and 100 pages of a novel. And I published a couple magazine pieces at this point. The piece about Escanaba and the making of the Jeff Daniels movie, Escanaba in the Moonlight, that was published in Harper's. And that was large part because, you know, one of the guys I was an intern with later became an editor there and we were friends and he encouraged me. And he, I just managed to get this thing into Harper's, which was a very big deal. It's my favorite magazine and I published a piece in it. And so my agent tried to sell my story collection and my novel and nobody wanted it. 
but Jenny Minton, who was an editor at Pantheon, had read the Harper's piece and she asked my agent if I had any nonfiction book ideas. And as it happens, I'd written Heather a paragraph that I was thinking about going to the Aral Sea in Uzbekistan to write a piece for Harper's. Harper's had already agreed, yes, we're going to do that. So Heather sent Jenny Minton, this editor, this 100-page email pitch. And next thing I knew, I had a book contract for a nonfiction book. Now, keep in mind, I'm not a journalist. I never intended to write a nonfiction book. I couldn't believe I was being offered this deal. And Heather just sort of talked me off the ledge and said, abandon the novel, forget the stories for now, write this book, this is your shot. And I did. And that was the first book that I, I published. And not having any fucking clue what I was doing in writing a nonfiction book, I just sort of thought about all the nonfiction books I loved. And some of them are really weird. And I just tried to do that. I don't know how well I succeeded, but it's, it's just absurd that it happened that way. A lot of your early writing takes like some kind of a take on, on travel writing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like travel writing is one of those things that like lots of people fantasize that they're going to be sent around the world and write about it. And the results are often not exactly what you want. <laughs> and you've actually written in, in the, the collection you have out now. What, what's the travel writer that you've got the essay? About? Robert D. Uh, Kaplan. Robert D. Kaplan. Probably uh, you're not going to be getting a Christmas card for the rest of your life no. from Robert D. Kaplan. No. You've uh, identified many of the pitfalls of writing, um, uh, both travel writing and, and war reporting in it. So like, what what did you do as a, a person who, who didn't have experience in this stuff? You know you're writing a book. How'd you approach it? Uh, well, I'd done a couple travel pieces. I'd spent six weeks in the Canadian Arctic at a NASA Mars training camp for Men's Journal. That assignment grew right out of the Harper's piece about my hometown. Some editor there read it. Tim Cahill dropped out of the NASA piece and they said, oh, I like that piece. That guy's funny. Let's send him up. So I, I did that. And you know, that was the extent of my travel writing is this my going to my hometown and writing about the high Canadian Arctic and NASA. But I'd read a lot of travel writing. Like a lot of people I'd fantasized about being sent around the world and writing my impressions about it. And, uh, you know, suddenly I was doing it. And, and I've said this, yeah, I say this in the introduction to Magic Hours, I just kind of learned it on the job. I didn't really know what the fuck I was doing. I just kept a notebook and took very thorough notes, typed them up every night, and then had a bunch of pages and then just started turning them into artful prose. That's the, the best way I can summarize my approach then. How did you approach like what kinds of scenarios that you put yourself in that you knew then you were going to turn into notes, turn into prose? I've always been much more so than I am now uh, when I have like a three-year-old. and But I kind of got a reputation early in my career is that I would basically go anywhere and do anything. Climb Mount Kilimanjaro with no training? Sure. Go into Afghanistan a month after September 11th with no military embed? Yeah, hell, what the hell? I'll do that. Go to Iraq for six weeks at the you know very worst point of the war. What the fuck? Yeah, sign me up. Which isn't to say I wasn't terrified doing all of those things. I was, but I thought the terror was actually a healthy way to approach these things. I've seen an awful lot of journalists who aren't scared to go to places like this, and you know not all of them have escaped unscathed. So I always took a very healthy dose of fear combined with my seeming fearlessness to do these things. So I've always just tried to be sane and careful and covetous of experiences that I would live through and be able to write about, but also heeding your gut instinct that when things feel truly dangerous to really, really watch your step, watch your tone, watch how you 
behave, follow people who know more than you do about the situation you're in, and just try to be a cool customer. You know, there's a situation in Chasing the Sea that I write about where I really thought I was going to be sent to prison for drug smuggling because the taxi we were with, uh, we got stopped at a border checkpoint and the taxi driver, they opened his trunk and they found a bag of white powder that for that moment looked like a bag of cocaine or heroin and the cops all drew their guns and everyone flipped out. And I'm sitting here staring at this thinking, oh my God, I am going to a fucking Uzbek prison. And then it turned out that it was just chalk. Uh, it was a bag of chalk for reasons I will never understand this guy was carrying in the trunk of his car. So that was one of the situations where I really felt truly terrified and endangered. And a couple times in Iraq when I was on these midnight convoy runs where there's like fighting happening all over the place, you know, in the vicinity, visibly within our site. It was nighttime, so you could see the tracer bullets firing. And those nerve-wracking moments, part of you is like, oh my God, I don't want to die. But the other part is I have to remember how this feels like so I can write about it later. So I guess to me at that point in my life, the fear of not having interesting stuff to write about just completely overthrew the fear of my own untimely demise. And now that I'm 44 years old, I have to say that I've had more than enough interesting stuff to write about. And the fear of my untimely demise is way more powerful than the desire to go, quote, experience things. I feel like you're the only person I know who's actually been in a war zone and likes to play war zone video games. Do you draw any connection from that fear, adrenaline, no. access to video no. games or totally distinct? Totally distinct. Video games is just problem solving. You know, I like shooters, but you're just solving moving puzzles. It's not a realistic, accurate depiction of war. It's just like I said, it's physical calisthenics. It's your brain and your fingers working in unison to solve interesting problems. And so, war games that really try to show the hell of war, I'm usually pretty cold to because I don't think anyone really can. And I've never really been like, there's war correspondents who have been in a million times hairier stuff than I ever saw. But yeah, I, like, I've had a couple game journalists say, have you experienced like covering war in Iraq colored, like how you write a shooter? And I'm like, oh my God, no, <laughs> no. It's like asking Tom Cruise of shooting Mission Impossible 3 makes him think that he could, you know, be a covert operator in the CIA? And the sure. answer is obviously, you know, no. <laughs> but going back to that idea of those foreign correspondents who've maybe been in hairier situations, but even though you don't describe yourself as a journalist, you did thrust yourself into situations that are generally reserved for war correspondents. What kind of a reception do you get if you're a person who doesn't really know what you're doing, you show up in Afghanistan and Iraq, <laughs> and most of the people around you have been doing this for 10, 15 years? That's funny. I don't know. I think by the time I did the Iraq piece, I was a bit more, uh, it was 2005, you know, I'd, my first book had come out a couple of years before my first couple books had come out by that point. And I'd published a lot of magazine pieces at that point. So I didn't feel like a fumbling moron at that point. But, um, you know, I said once in an interview, or I'll just say it again here, that never underestimate seeming incompetence as a very good way to get people to say things to you that they wouldn't otherwise say. So it was kind of my very plucky boy journalist persona that I had back then, you know, when I was a fresh faced 29 and 30 year old that, you know, people would say things to me that I could just see them wince instantly. You know? <laughs> and uh, I think one of the reasons I was never a great reporter reporter 
is because whenever I was interviewing someone and they'd said something I knew they shouldn't have, I would always feel bad for them and never put it in because I'm like, oh, I don't want to make that person upset. You know, if someone was talking about something that made them uncomfortable, I'm like, ooh, touchy topic. Let's not go there again. So I'm not that I've never been that kind of hard hitting, let's get to the truth reporter. I've always just been interested in writing about events and how they intersected with my own life. So I guess it makes me like a travel memoirist or something, but which isn't to say I haven't done what I like to think of as pretty straight reporting that I'm really proud of. It's just that's never been my calling. When your general uh, orienting principle is events and how they interact with your life, what's it like to not be young anymore and you know have a life where you can't necessarily go to Afghanistan at the drop of a hat? I miss travel immensely. It's the only downside of being a father to a young kid. I miss travel immensely. But as for being a young kid writer, I, I'm very content being who I am now and writing what I am now. I don't miss those days at all. In fact, I think I was a lot more callow and I think my writing was a lot more performative. And, you know, I go back and read some of my earlier stuff. I get kind of uncomfortable because I can tell where I was bullshitting. And I'm sure I bullshit now too, but I just don't think I do it as often or as flamboyantly or as transparently. And, um, being a dad really, I don't know if you're a father, Aaron, by any chance. I am. I'm a very recent father. Well, actually. congratulations. Three, mo- that's- three month old daughter. Oh, my heart is swelling with joy. And I was just thinking about how I'm never going to travel again. Being a father changes, <laughs> changed me at least. I don't know if it changes you, but it changed me. And so many of the professional neuroses you have just vanish. At least they did for me. Like, My number one concern when I get up in the morning is how am I going to be a good father and model for this little girl? And how do I teach her to be a young woman, thriving, independent, fearless in a pretty scary world? That's what I wake up thinking about in the morning. How do I do that? So writing is still my passion, still my life's blood, but it's, you know, vying for, you know, number one importance in my brain with this reality of having to raise a child. And it really does change the way you think about yourself, the world, your calling. And I never would have imagined that. I never would have imagined how important being a good father would become to me emotionally and intellectually. I was surprised when I went back, and I think the collection is uh, moves through linear time, how some of the earlier pieces are less empathetic towards other writers and are a little bit like more like shit talky for like lack of a <laughs> yes. better word. Yeah, it's, and it's then I was like, oh, this guy is going to write The Disaster Artist, which is what I consider one of the more empathetic takes on About failure? failure and bad art and like weird people I've ever read. Tell me about how that came about and, and what that experience was like. Uh, I've, I, I'd like to think I've just become more empathetic about everything. I'm more empathetic about my own parents and their perceived failures. I'm more empathetic about people who, quote, fail. I mean, because look, nobody sets out when they're 24, 25 years old to publish books that sell 6,000 copies and are out of print in eight years, right? Nobody sets out to do that, but then it happens to you. And then how do you deal with it? Are you a failure? No, you're someone that took your shot. That's a publishing success story. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, failure exists at multiple frequencies, right? Yeah. So no one really quite becomes the thing they're going to become, unless you're like John Lennon or Michael Jordan or something, and then they do, but you know, there's not many of those people. 
So you kind of just temper like your expectations of what other people do. Like whenever I, I hate that law that says 90% of everything is shit. I really disagree with it. I think like there's so many good, competent, wonderful books out there that when I go into a bookstore, I just despair at all the wonderful books I'll never get a chance to read or all the wonderful movies now that I'll never get a chance to see because all I watch are fucking children's movies. But um, I think the world is filled with truly interesting people and truly interesting books and films. And I try not to hold my own interest or my own love of something as the arbiter as to whether or not it's any good. I think I've completely moved beyond that. And I think most people do when they're adults. And you're just much more content to let people have different ideas from yours and different sort of aesthetic expectations from yours. And the fire breather I was as a young critic, I kind of am embarrassed about that now. And I know this is a completely commonplace trajectory for a lot of young fire breathing critics who sort of mellow with old age. And I think it's common because it's <laughs> it's really the only human response that you can have, you know, unless you like the middle-aged firebrand critic. Nobody likes that guy. Nobody likes that guy. The youthful firebrand critic is sort of tolerated because, you know, I think it's a it's a trope, right? It's the, they're like an iconic part of the literary atmosphere. The people who just want to, you know, commit patricide and, and matricide on all their fathers and mothers literarily. I feel bad for people now because I feel like it's a blessing to have youthful firebrandishness uh, erased and the internet just won't allow that to happen. So yeah. people's like angry college writing is now going to live forever. And that's probably not a great thing. That is not, that's a really not great thing. I think uh, the amber that social media is going to place everyone's juvenilia in is going to be really alarming uh, for those people 20 years from now, I'm sure. So when you've been writing about video games, we describe them as an experiential medium. When you try to apply the tools of text-based criticism to an experiential medium, how does that work? How does it work to write about something that is meant to be uh, felt or triggered? Well, it goes back to the famous Elvis Costello riposte about, you know, writing about music, you might as well dance about architecture, right? Yeah. Um, there's certainly something of that when you're writing about video games. So my early video game reviews all kind of harped endlessly on the narrative content of them and how they were or were not good. And then eventually I moved away from that. And the last few video games I wrote, I just wrote about the games as an experience as a whole. And I tried to write video game reviews that were no different from my book reviews. This is the experience this piece of culture allows you. This is how I feel about it. This is why I think it's successful or not. I mean, that's really all you can do. And most video games reviews are the bastard child of consumerist, like consumer report style tech reviews and sort of more bellatristic personal experience essays. And it's never been a really good fit. I just tried to bring a kind of rigor, the kind of rigor I had for book reviews by critics I loved, Clive James, Martin Amos, you know, they write about books so entertainingly. I just wanted to try to bring that sort of voice and exuberance into the game space. That was really all I tried to do. And I think that it was, you know, relatively unusual at the time was just most video game critics weren't reading Martin Amos and Clive James, you know, that just, they weren't on their radar. Uh, they were reading older video game reviews maybe, but not to say there weren't and aren't a lot of fine writers who wrote and write about video games today. There are, there's lots of them. There's an explosion of them in fact, but 
you know, historically, it's not been a medium that has given us a lot of great essays. But then, you know, film reviewing hasn't either. There's been lots of great reviews, but there's very few kind of movie pieces that like have stood the test of time as being like great essays. I would agree with that. Like, I, I think that um, the challenge of writing about film in uh, 1930 as the talkies came in must have been similar. How? What, yeah. what do you just say? What happened on the screen? Do you tell people what the story is? Like, you don't even know exactly what you're supposed to be covering. Yeah. Like, do you ever read James Agee's film reviews? I think I have a book of them that I've never opened. Yeah. So I, I love James Agee. Well, I love Let Us Praise Famous Men. I've never read his novel, but I found an out of print copy of his film reviews and was like, oh, this is going to be great. And it was like, it was like reading Mandarin Chinese, you know, it was all these movies that have vanished from time. He was writing about them in a way that I could recognize like why they were so groundbreaking and why he was so interesting. But reading reviews of movies you've never heard of, even by a great writer is pretty tough sledding. I think I had a, so, a similar experience with Borges as film reviews where I was yeah. like, what's going on here? What movie, <laughs> what movie are we talking about? <laughs> And the joke was those movies didn't even exist. <laughs> How long did it take you from when you started writing about games till when you started writing games? A couple of years. I got my first job maybe like a year after Extra Lives came out. I was writing a sequel to my favorite game of all time, which was pretty fucking crazy as a first effort. And then the game kind of got canned and I got you know let go. And that was kind of a heartbreaker. But then I wound up working on another game franchise I liked a lot and have been on that franchise ever since. So it was a pretty short hop actually, but it was because I knew a guy as it, it always is. I knew a guy who was looking for a writing partner and he and I teamed up on some stuff and he already had connections. So that was just the way it went down. Who writes video games? I feel like I know people who've crossed over from uh, literary journalism to many fields of writing, but I mm -hmm. have never uh, encountered a video <laughs> game writer before. Uh, who writes video games? Uh, failed screenwriters, successful screenwriters, ambitious programmers and artists who have a knack for writing. People like me who are sort of, you know, jack of all trades refugees from the uh, collapsing literary economy. Um, all sorts of people write games. Is writing video games like, do you write a script? Like, do you use Final Draft when you're doing it? Like, what's the format? Uh, it depends. You use Final Draft for some sections of the game. You write in Excel for other sections of the game. It's all just a weird grab bag. If they're written completely out of order, you write it as you're going along. So you're literally laying the, you're figuratively laying the trains of the track as the train is going 80 miles an hour. It is a completely chaotic and bizarre writing process. It's not like a movie, you know, the movie has a script, the script is ready, everyone agrees on roughly what the interpretation of it is, and then they go shoot it. A game, you come up with like a high level pitch document for what the story will be. There's the 10 pager, then you write the five pager, then you write the two pager, or you start with the two pager, write the five pager, write the 10 pager. And then once the 10 pager is written, a bunch of environment artists start building environments that they think they're going to need, and the level designers start building out the levels. And everything sort of starts getting built from the center out. And uh, you just start writing scripts as the game is being made. So uh, you can probably see why I've been disabused of like the hope of a truly cohesive narrative experience when that's sure. the production reality of the average video game. It's very hard to do that in a way that feels totally controlled and intended. And, and uh, there's not a lot of authorial control. 
I was thinking about what you said about film and criticism, and I was thinking about how some of the most enjoyable experiences I've had uh, beyond the text of film have been uh, DVD commentaries yes. and Mystery Science Theater 3000 kind of stuff where someone is One layering. of the biggest influences on me as a writer is that show. And I'm thinking about now how the with video games, um, some of the stuff with Twitch, where people are basically watching other people play video games and experiencing it along with them has become the dominant sidecar format to video games and is maybe even bigger than video games now with some of this like League of Legends kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I don't get it. I'm here to tell you that I'm a, <laughs> I'm now a fogey in my cutting edge industry. I'm, I'm an elder person. I, know. I, don't, I don't get any of it. Yeah, I've, I've watched some streams and, uh, you know, it looks, it's put to me by someone I know who wrote a piece about Twitch, Twitcher's agents in The New Yorker, Taylor Clark. So he engaged a lot with this and he came to the conclusion that there's pleasure to be had in watching one of two things, really great performers or super skilled executioners. And so the two kinds of Twitchers that have the biggest audiences are people that are just fun to watch, watch them goof around and dick around. And then there are people who are superlatively gifted at the game that's being played. And so you just get to watch excellence on screen and it's exciting. And I get that. I don't find it exciting, but you know, why is the reason I love watching NBA basketball, but I hate watching the NFL? It's, it all just gets down to the vagaries of what you as a viewer and uh, audience member are tolerant of, I guess. So for you, you're doing all this stuff. You're still writing. You have uh, the Apostle book. You're putting out these collections of some of your earlier essays. You're writing video games. Like, What do you like do when you wake up every morning? What's the life of someone doing a bunch of different stuff like? Uh, I work in a blind panic until I have to stop, take care of my daughter, and then I work in a blind panic. I mean, I work... I'm also doing a bunch of various TV things, none of which ever happen, but there's always the promise that they will. So you do, you know, hours of free work for various people. And then it, so uh, lots of TV stuff, video game stuff. Uh, you know, I'm reviewing a book for the New York Times. Uh, I'm still working on my own personal literary stuff, which may or not, may not become something down the line. Who knows? So I just sort of wake up in the morning figure out what's the most pressing thing I have to do, focus on that until I can't stand anymore, and then move on to the next thing. I mean, I've become an incredibly efficient multi-project person, which is so weird because I was never that before. I worked on one thing and one thing alone until it was done. When you're writing a book and magazine pieces, it's different. But you, you know, when you switch over to the magazine piece, you just work on it until it's done, then you go back to the book. Work on the book till you run out of money, do another magazine piece. I cannot afford that now. So I just sort of scramble around. And it's been very funny my experience with Hollywood stuff is I'm pretty fast. Like I turn stuff around really fast, like two or three days to write like, you know, a paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> and when I turn this around there, everyone's like, Oh my God, you're so fast. Thank you so much. And I'm like, what are Hollywood screenwriters doing? Yeah. We're like turning two pages around in a day is viewed as this like, you know, David Copperfield esque act of sleight of hand, you know? So it's just, it's, I've just turned like into a, a machine of ruthless efficiency, which is uh, kind of nice on the one hand, but, Life doesn't have a lot of daily joy when it doesn't revolve around my uh, partner and my daughter, I got to say. Does it scramble your brain to be changing gears from Hollywood and to games to your own writing? Yeah. Yeah. I need a day of decompression before I can even think about writing literary prose when I've been writing screenplay stuff or game stuff because to get back into, because, you know, literary prose is, is almost a form of meditation. 
It's a form of seeing more deeply. It's a form of making connections. It's a form of like really reading people and reading situations and reading patterns and colors and images. Screenplays are just present tense descriptions of people doing things. There's very little reflection. There's very little metaphor. There's very little, you're doing all this pretty microscopic story stuff, but just the seeing of it. You're relying on other people, actors, directors, to do the really close in seeing that as a prose writer, you do on a second to second basis. So getting back into that space, I almost have to like clear my mind of electronic distraction for a day so I can get back into the place where I know, okay, now I'm writing literary prose. It, it's, you have to do some house cleaning. You have to move a lot of the furniture around. At least I do. Do you pick and choose different projects based on sort of like, I need to get paid on this many projects. I can afford this many projects where I don't need to get paid. I appreciate that you've been pretty open about like, Hey, I, I work on video games cause they pay well. Like how do you manage that in your own life in terms of like what you're doing and not doing? Well, I mean, I have three rules. Don't do something if it's not at least fun, remunerative, or you're interested in it. If it's fun, that's a good reason to do it. If it doesn't pay a lot, but it's fun, good, do it. If you're really interested in it, but it doesn't pay well, or maybe you're really interested in it does pay well, great, do that. Or if it pays well, you know, that's a good reason to do something too. But I've never had to write something that I didn't want to write. You know, and, and even though I, I say I work in games because it pays well, I also do it because I love it. I love the medium. I, I love the people I work with. It's a genuinely interesting form of writing that not a lot of people have had inner exposure to. But at the same time, I've been immensely lucky to have really been able to follow my star and, and write about things I'm interested in for my whole career. And God, what a gift that is. When you have um, something that leaps out, like the way that Disaster Artist um, seems like it's had like a really big life with um, the movie coming out. Yeah. Or I remember when your Guardian piece about playing Grand Theft Auto <laughs> came out. Like seriously, everyone I know who is into video games, that was like a big article for them because they were like, no one ever writes about this stuff. You know what I mean? Like this is the only article about this thing that I'm obsessed with that has come out. Do a bunch of opportunities come in after an explosion like that? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Disaster Artist just like kicked down so many doors like especially in Hollywood. I live in Los Angeles, right? And I have, I got a manager who just, I was getting like interviews and job chances just on the basis of that movie. And I said to him, I didn't work on the movie. And he's like, oh yeah, they know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just validating. It's validating to have a big splashy movie made on one of your, your things, you know? Yeah. So, so with the, the disaster artist, um, that was a story that I'm assuming when you like worked on the har very first Harper's incarnation of it. You didn't think that uh, this many years later, we'd still be talking about this. Oh, uh, God, no. <laughs> no, no. And then no. it became the book, and the book became a screenplay. Screenplay became movie. Movie got a lot of awards attention. With such a delicate tone, particularly around Tommy Wiseau, who's this really... I can't think of any figure really to compare him to in the world. Um, this really unique figure. And Jay Gatsby. Great Gatsby, yes, exactly. Um, and really like kind of a touchy uh, subject, you know, writing about someone who made what many people consider the best bad movie or the worst movie, however you want to describe it. What has it been like to see that tone that was started in this original Harper's piece get further and further away from you and get into realms that you don't have the same kind of fine-tuned control over? 
I don't really view it that way. I feel like the movie that James made and that Scott Weber and Michael Neustadter wrote very much honored the tone of the book and the original piece that didn't view Tommy with mockery. And working on that, first the Harper's piece, and then when I met Greg Sestero for the first time, not knowing anything about him, not knowing any of his backstory with Tommy, and as he began to lay out for me the story of their friendship, just listening to this guy that if I'd looked at him in LA, I would have thought, oh, there goes some pretty boy model type. And just realizing that this person that I would not have assumed much of was actually sitting on one of the most moving, interesting stories that I'd ever heard in my life. I mean, what a lesson that is for a writer. It's made me intensely aware of that everyone I meet at any given moment is sitting on a treasure house of riveting human material, you know? We are all made up of stories, and I will never, ever take that for granted again, that as a, quote, writer, you have some sort of special gift at unearthing those stories. You might have a gift at telling them, but, you know, Christ, you know a lot of writers, I know a lot of writers. Our lives are not often the stuff of riveting narrative material. And, you know, working with Greg on that story and seeing how brave he was to come out the way he did and portray himself and not, shall we say, the, always the most like positive, heroic way in that story, that was really him putting himself out there and being like, I'm not the hero of the story. Tommy's the hero. I witnessed it. You know, I did some stuff that was kind of sketchy. You know, the way I got even got involved as an actor in the movie, if you read the book, you read the first chapter, you kind of see that the Faustian bargain Tommy put before Greg and Greg writes very openly about that he made the deal with the devil, you know, out of greed. All that stuff that Greg brought to it and just his willingness to tell a story is one of the great gifts of my writing life. You know, I got to help him tell a story that has resonated with, God, millions of people now. How many times can you do that as a writer? I mean, it's the first time I've ever experienced it. And it's a pretty amazing feeling. And I'm glad I, I had a you know small part of that. Well, uh, thank you so much for this interview. I was delighted to do it. Thank you for having me on. And that was the long form podcast. Hey, I don't know if I actually said the name of Tom Bissell's book that we were talking about. It's Magic Hours. It is out now. Highly recommend it. Uh, as, in addition to his other collection, actually, Extra Lives, which is great also. Um, thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Thanks to our intern, Angela Velez. Thanks to our sponsors, Tripping.com. Get that vacation rental today at Tripping.com slash longform. And of course, MailChimp. Thanks to them. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Socks brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.